Hello and welcome to the ninth episode in our Global Business Crime Outlook podcast series. My name is Alison Saunders and I'm a partner in the Linklater's business crime practice in the UK. I'm joined today by my colleagues Adam Lurie, a partner in our Washington DC team, Ellie Proudlock, a counsel in London, and Chris Kerrigan, a partner from our Australian alliance firm, Allens. Welcome to you all. So we're going to talk about the um, DPAs and the UK Serious Fraud Office was very busy over the last summer, concluding in July its 10th, 11th and 12th DPAs since they became available as a tool in 2014. Of course, the US DPA re regime is far more established and with Australia on the cusp of getting its own DPA regime modelled on the UK, we'll be discussing the challenges that the UK and US authorities have faced with DPAs and asking what issues a new Australian model might have to grapple with. So Chris, what exactly are the plans for a DPA regime in Australia? Well, Alison, a bill is still being considered by the federal parliament. But if and when it's passed, uh, DPAs will be available to companies for resolving serious corporate crimes at the federal level, including for offences uh, relating to foreign bribery, money laundering, fraud, uh, breaches of sanctions laws and various other criminal breaches of the Corporations Act. The bill will also introduce a new failure to prevent offence for foreign bribery uh, for companies with an adequate procedures defence available. And this is modelled on what was introduced in the UK uh, under Section 7 of the Bribery Act. And the intention is to make uh, the DPA scheme available to that new offence as well. Like in the UK and the US, uh, companies entering into a DPA under this regime will be required to admit facts detailing the relevant misconduct. A penalty will be a typical component, as well as steps to be undertaken to improve compliance, although neither of those are mandatory components. A difference under the Australian uh, regime is that any DPA will not take effect until it's been independently assessed by a retired judicial officer appointed for that purpose rather than a sitting judge. Do you think the bill is likely to be passed? And if so, when can we expect that to happen? That is an interesting question. Uh, we did think it, it would have a good chance of being passed earlier in the year, but the, uh, the sudden entry into a, into a further lockdown in Australia has, has pushed back um, the government's legislative priorities and so we're probably looking at the the end of this year or possibly even early next year um, to see progress with the bill but it does have good cross-party support. Okay it's interesting that the bill introduces both a DPA regime and a failure to prevent foreign bribery offence so I mean perhaps it's no surprise that although DPAs can be used to resolve a range of economic offences in the UK they become almost synonymous with Section 7 of the Bribery Act and the corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery, where the threshold for corporate criminal liability is lower. So the prevalence of DPAs in Section 7 enforcement means that now 10 years after the Bribery Act came into force, some of the key legal issues around jurisdiction, associated persons, adequacy of procedures, those sorts of things have still not been properly tested in a UK criminal court. Do you think something similar will happen in Australia? Yeah, I, I think that's very likely. I think since the threshold for um, proving foreign bribery under this new proposed failure to prevent events will be lower, as it is in the UK, uh, the onus will be on the company 
to prove it had adequate procedures in place. And, and many companies may prefer to pursue a negotiated outcome through a DPA rather than take their chance in court. Uh, but importantly, DPAs are going to be available, as I said, for other corporate offences. And some of those corporate offences do have lower uh, liability thresholds. So this may drive down the number of contested prosecutions across across the board in Australia. OK, and one of the key advantages of DPAs is supposedly the ability to wrap up a matter more quickly and much more efficiently. I wonder, Adam, how has that been borne out in practice in the existing DPA regimes, perhaps starting with you? Thanks, Alison. Look, they, they can be quicker, but they still take time. It's a long, long negotiation oftentimes. And the key advantage in the United States really is not necessarily time but the avoidance of a criminal conviction and any of the consequences that flow from such a conviction for a company. For example, things like being debarred from U.S. or state contracting uh, ability or defaulting on various loan obligations or other contracts. And of course, reputational damage that can flow from a criminal conviction. Yeah, I think that applies in the UK too. I mean, we've had 12 DPAs so far, and I wouldn't say they've been consistently or significantly quicker to resolve than prosecutions. Now, that's partly down to an under-resourced SFO, but also a consequence of the criminal legal process here in the UK, in particular, the requirement to meet an evidential threshold before a DPA can be considered, also the need for judicial approval, and the, the pretty onerous disclosure regime that will apply when it comes to subsequent prosecutions of individuals. So what that means is that the required cooperation for a DPA inevitably involves active participation in a protracted and, and sometimes very slow moving investigation over several years. So Ellie, do you think that reduces the attractiveness of a DPA for corporates? Well, it certainly raises the question whether for companies where exclusion from public procurement isn't an issue, DPAs are necessarily enough of an incentive to self-report, even with the now commonly applied 50% discount on penalty compared with the 30% for an early guilty plea to a charge. Okay, so it'll be interesting, Chris. Do you think this is likely to be an issue in the Australian model as well? I think so. Um, I mean, most of the same concerns that arise in the UK in terms of whether it's worth it for companies, they're likely to arise in Australia. Um, crucially, there's no compulsory debarment regime at federal level in Australia, and the proposed DPA regime in Australia has no clarity as to the discount uh, a corporation would likely receive in terms of penalty for agreeing a DPA. And when you couple that with a market here that's got a very aggressive uh, securities regulator, it's very happy um, to publicly enforce directors and officers duties and a very uh, mature securities class action market. I think there's going to be some real risks uh, to navigate in negotiating and, and, and agreeing DPAs. One problem that has plagued the UK regime to date is that all individual prosecutions by the SFO following corporate DPAs have failed. Some of these have been acquittals by juries, but two cases were dismissed by the judge during trial. Ellie, do you think that zero success rate gives the UK DPA regime a bad name? Well, to some extent, it's an inevitable consequence of one matter being settled and the other contested. A DPA is, of course, an admission of facts, not guilt. And there are all sorts of reasons why it may be in a company's interest to settle a matter 
even where it has an arguable defence. But an individual who's facing prison and or professional ruin has less to lose by fighting it. I don't think it's realistic to expect that a conviction will be secured in every or, or, or even in most cases that settled by way of a DPA. But when the SFO can't even get past half time at trial, which is, as you say, has happened twice now, this starts to give the impression that DPAs may be too easy to secure and that the prosecution case is being perhaps insufficiently scrutinised by both the SFO and the approving judge, leading to companies agreeing DPAs on facts that are not capable of being prosecuted. But to what extent does the inconsistency of outcome have to do with the different thresholds for corporate as opposed to individual liability? Well, I'm not sure that's been a significant factor in the UK because it's still very hard to prosecute corporates for most criminal offences here. In the cases we're talking about, the liability of, of the corporate hinged on the liability of relevant individuals in any event. But I I'm not sure. I think the position may be different in Australia and in the US. I think inconsistent outcomes will feature in Australia um, because the criminal liability threshold for companies and individuals are different. Uh, for example, some of the more serious corporate criminal offences here are strict or, or vicarious liability offences, which means they can be breached through negligence or inadvertence or, or through the acts of employees. And, and obviously that's not the case for individual liability. Uh, we also have a basis here on which a corporation can be liable for some offences as a result of a deficient corporate culture. And there's also potential law reform in the pipeline, which if adopted, uh, would lower the bar for, for many other corporate offences. Um, and as you rightly point out, Ellie, the, the, uh, sorry, the considerations for individuals are, are very different. Adam, hasn't the DOJ tried to address a similar issue? Yeah, we often they have. I mean, the, the threshold for corporate criminal liability, although technically still has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, a company can be liable for the criminal acts of any of, any of its employees, no matter how low in the organization or how high. So the, the bar is, is lower. And prosecutors have often tried to aggregate the conduct and states of mind of a lot of different individuals within a company to establish criminal intent uh, for a company. Uh, or at least they can point to any of those individuals to hold the company responsible. That said, I mean, to raise the level of focus on individual accountability, the Justice Department in the United States has, has sought to address this issue first several years ago by making clear that it was the department's policy to require cooperating companies to identify all relevant facts related to individuals. And actually just this week, uh, I should say just last week, uh, the Biden Justice Department announced a recommitment to that policy and tried to make very clear to companies that there'd be no credit for cooperating unless companies fully disclose all relevant information about any culpable uh, employee. And so what in practical terms this means is that the Justice Department is really looking to acquire evidence against these individuals for their subsequent prosecutions and making that a condition of receiving credit and a condition of receiving a deferred prosecution agreement. And the Justice Department, at least in the area of fraud and bribery, they're, they're not permitted to release culpable individuals from liability when resolving a matter with a company. So where there's a DPA, at least in the Justice Department, there has to be a very clear plan, both internally to pursue individuals 
and an expectation from a company that the company will help the Justice Department pursue individuals. So, and on the subject of individuals, another feature of the UK regime, which has been a pretty hot topic of debate, is that a DPA is solely an agreement between the prosecutor and the corporate. So there's no role for any impacted individuals to influence or even have sight of its content, yet they can be significantly impacted by it. Also, um, interestingly, there is nothing in the DPA regime that provides for anonymity. And so whilst there will often be reporting restrictions pending the trial of any individuals, after that, um, that's over and the facts of the DPA can be published, even if the individuals have been found not guilty. So how does this compare to other regimes? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here, Alison. Look, in the United States, at least, the Justice Department does have rules, their internal policy rules that prohibit prosecutors from naming unindicted co-conspirators in charging documents absent some kind of significant justification. So that means they're technically not allowed to name an employee who conspired with a company or another uh, employee, for example. And the Justice Department follows this policy in connection with DPAs. But here's the rub. The Justice Department rules, they don't prohibit the department from referring to an unindicted co-conspirator with a generic reference like employee one or employee two, then followed by a further description of that individual's role in the alleged crime or details about their role in the company. And this is the approach the Justice Department often takes in DPAs and other charging documents. And as we've seen all too often when representing an individual, their community will still be able to identify them. And it really presents some unfairness to that individual and is often a source of negotiation and an area of tension uh, with the Justice Department. Yeah, that's really interesting, Adam. And we're, we're starting to see this issue come up in Australia uh, in a recent bribery matter where a company had agreed to plead guilty and, and sign a statement of facts. The accused individuals successfully obtained a non-publication order in respect to those facts. And that was on the basis that it would, it would prejudice the juries um, in their proceedings. The proposed DPA regime addresses this by allowing the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions to publish a version of the DPA that doesn't disclose material that the director considers shouldn't be disclosed. Uh, and the admissibility of the DPA and the, the statement of facts will, will be limited, so it can't be used against an individual. Um, however, after the trial of any individuals, any non-publication order in respect of the of the DPA and the settlement lapses, even if those individuals are acquitted. So in that circumstance, there could still be you know, a reputational consequence for those individuals. A really interesting related concern for executives and board members in Australia is the prospect of civil enforcement by our securities regulator ASIC. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, but that there are often enforcements um, against directors and officers for alleged breach of their duty of reasonable care and diligence. Uh, and we see that as a real risk with the DPA regime, where as a result of the facts agreed in a DPA, uh, one could argue that that indicates a failure in risk management or a systemic non-compliance um, that could have been prevented or addressed earlier by the directors or officers. Uh, and likewise, there's a risk uh, 
peculiar to the banking sector, but, but to be extended to the financial services sector under our banking executive accountability regime, which is Australia's equivalent to the UK senior managers regime. And much like the risk I've just described with directors and officers, um, executives subject to that regime will, will be nervous about agreeing DPAs and, and what that might mean for their, for their own liability. And what about other collateral consequences for the corporate party to a DPA, Chris? Yeah, I mean, Alison, as I mentioned earlier, we, we do have a mature um, class action market here. And so listed entities are, are going to face class actions uh, relating to their failure to disclose or adequately disclose compliance failures or, or weaknesses that then lead to some form of economic or reputational loss, be it pecuniary penalties or otherwise. Um, and, and ASIC, the securities regulator, on occasion takes enforcement um, itself for the same um, disclosure provisions. The use of agreed facts in a DPA, both in terms of you know, strict admissibility and the reality just practically of agreeing facts in one forum and then um, seeking to dispute them in another, um, as well as the fact that class action plaintiffs are going to request all the documents referred to in statement of agreed facts or underpinning uh, those facts. Those are real risks for Australian corporates. And I think they're going to be very wary of, of how to navigate those when considering uh, and potentially negotiating a DPA. Great. Adam, have such risks manifested um, themselves in the USA? And if so, what challenges do they present for getting DPA resolutions over the line? For, for sure. I mean, with no secret, we have an extremely active plaintiff's bar in the United States, very active class action bar. And it's, it's often a top concern for companies who resolve a DPA. Once you get past the liability concerns, uh, the reputational concerns high on the list is the risk of collateral lawsuits, uh, class actions or otherwise. And it's often, again, a point of negotiating uh, with the Justice Department or in some cases the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and pointing out that there's a very high probability that if a company enters into a DPA with factual admissions, they'll then face yet further punishment by shareholders or other um, class action filers. And so many of the same risks that Chris outlined are, are true here too. Uh, and then some just again, because of how active our class action bar is. Okay, so Chris, before we wrap up, what would you say are the key things to watch as the Australian regime develops? Yeah, I think a couple of things, Alison. I think the, the first is, is we're gonna be really interesting to see whether this regime creates a safer space for companies to admit wrongdoing and, and resolve it and move on where something's gone wrong. You know, there's an arguable case as to whether there's a criminal offense committed and there's no real attractive civil alternative. Um, we're seeing an increasing pressure on companies to admit guilt or liability in cases where something has gone wrong. Um, and that pressure is coming from a range of stakeholders. So while I don't see the, the DPA is a panacea for dealing with all the attendant risks that come with confessing guilt. Um, there are some carrots there, which, which may tip the balance in favor in a number of cases. And then I think second is, is I'm really interested to see how this regime influences 
how corporates engage with law enforcement agencies and regulators. If we leave the foreign bribery laws to one side, in Australia, we don't have a great culture of self-reporting uh, beyond you know, mandatory breach reporting in the financial services sector. And we don't see a great deal of interest from regulators and law enforcement in collaborating uh, with companies on investigations in the way that, that we see um, in the US and to some extent the UK. So the DPA regime might, and I, I put it no higher than a might, it might just ha help to affect a mindset change, both within law enforcement and regulators and corporates as to how, how, they, how they progress investigations. Thanks, and we look forward to um, watching how it develops in Australia. So thank you very much, Chris, Adam and Ellie, and thanks to everybody who has tuned in to listen to us. Um, if anyone is interested in finding out more, you will find lots of helpful resources on the Business Crime and Investigations on the Linklaters website. And if you would like to get in touch with one of the team, then please do reach out to one of us. Many thanks. Mm -hmm.